In this episode, Philippa Han of Clark Wilmot talks through with me the good, the bad and the ugly of the British Steel Pension Scheme debacle. We talk about what went wrong and what still needs fixing today. involvement with the whole uh, British Steel pension scheme business has been? So my name is Philippa Han. I am a partner at Clark Wilmot Solicitors, where I specialise in financial services litigation and have done for the best part of 20 years. I got involved with the British Steel debacle as a result of Al Rush getting in contact with me to say he thought there was an issue. Now, that was back in 2018. And initially, we thought it was just going to be one particular group of clients of about 30. Met with them back in February 18. And it has really just mushroomed from there as we've discovered that every time we turn over a stone, there is another problem underneath. And we now have around 140 firms where we are bringing claims for over well over a thousand clients. And those claims are what, against financial advisory businesses? Yes, they are against all of those 140 are regulated financial advisor firms. And presumably by definition, those are firms that are still in business and still trading. They are dropping There's a huge problem with insurance and the minimum required professional indemnity insurance that is associated with financial advisors. And I've spoken about this quite a lot before. So as the as the claims progress and where those claims are successful, often the advice firm will fall into insolvency because Uh, To be fair to them, through no fault of their own, there have been exclusions applied to their PI policies and they are no longer insured for these claims, which means that slowly but surely there are an increasing number of claims which are being directed to the FSCS. And so absent that, if if the PI insurance doesn't cover it, it's got to come out of the pockets of the business owners, right? Well, it's got to come out of the pockets of the business rather than the business owners usually because they're mostly very sensibly limited companies. But if that limited company doesn't have sufficient assets, then yes, they, they will form, but they and, will enter into some form given of the sums involved and the extent of the advice given, that could, that could happen pretty quickly, right? Yes, yeah, and it has done to a number of, of and, and it happens regularly. So you started off, you were talking about, you got involved pretty early on. So if it was February 2018, did you say that yeah. was before the whole kind of time to choose window had closed? So at that point, the members were still faced with that choice of new scheme, old scheme or transfer. And you, you mentioned how Russ got you involved. Did you, were you going down to Wales at that point and talking to the members? Yes, Yes, I was going down and and we were holding big group meetings to try and understand who was affected. Uh, We had the involvement of Nick Smith MP and Stephen Kinnock Mm -hmm. MP. I have to say they have been absolutely fantastic. And the whole thing is, is it is it's quite shocking, actually, just how significant this issue has been. I mean, this isn't the first time there has been an issue with with DB pension transfers, no, and we, we seem to have forgotten We've got form, exactly. Haven't we? <laughs> yes, yeah, 
Yeah, it's really shocking. And and actually, you know, I was looking back and uh, I was working with a financial advisory business and I was working with insurance companies through the 90s. So I saw the legacy of the pension mis-selling, but also, you know, there's been endowment mis-selling, there's been equity release mis-selling, there was Arch Crew, more recently there's LCF. You know, it's not like the industry doesn't have form here. It's not like this was surprising. And I guess it's easy to say this with hindsight, but actually even at the time, people like Al and others were saying that we've got a problem here. That combination of circumstances of a deadline, large sums of money, complex valuations, you know, relatively without wishing to sound pejorative, financially illiterate individuals, I mean, and, and DB transfers are complex. You know, it's hardly surprising things, you know, things that, and also on the backdrop of pension freedoms as well. I mean, for me, and I'd be really interested in your take on this, I look at this now and think, well, why did no one think this was going to go wrong? Yeah, it was a perfect storm. And you add into everything that you've quite rightly mentioned there. And, and you know, hey, who who is financially sophisticated when it comes to DB pensions. I mean, you you can't even advise on those if you are a financial advisor without the specific permissions and the additional uh, exams. You've got to add into that. You know, you've got this sort of boiler room sort of scenario where people are having to make a decision very quickly. People are very afraid because their employer had over time taken away benefits from them. So there was a huge lack of trust there there was a great deal of fear and a great deal of misinformation. And the misinformation and the information asymmetry where the advisors had a lot of information and the steel workers had very little information. And also the steel workers have a particular sort of characteristic around the fact that many of them will have been born and raised in the same town. They're very, they tend to be very, very close to their shift group. And they were all going through this at the same time. So it's not the same as somebody who is sort of thinking to themselves, well, should I transfer out of my DB scheme? It it had the dynamic of there being a whole cohort of people who were affected so by this. There's a social con- contagion going on yes, as well. Yeah. Absolutely. And when you that contagion is tinged with fear and mistrust, when people are in that survival mode it's very difficult for them to make very logical decisions. And it's very easy for for those who wish to, to manipulate them. So that's where, I mean, there's three agents there that I think are worth calling out. One is the scheme administrators themselves. The other mm. is the pensions regulator and the other is the FCA. So because those are the three bodies I would have looked to, to sort of step up, preempt the risks, Take, take the members by the hand, ensure they made good, informed decisions. So I'd be interested in your thoughts on those three in, 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 back in that situation, back in 2017-18. With the benefit in hindsight, yeah. it should have been obvious, as you say, that there would have been this issue. There has been, of course, the parliamentary review, and none of those entities came out of that review particularly well. I think the trustees were very, very afraid of giving advice or being seen to give advice. And of course, they were not allowed when they when they went through the, the, the consultation 
back in May 2016, they were not allowed to do a bulk transfer. And I've never really understood why they weren't allowed to do a bulk transfer, because that the unintended consequence of that is that if people did nothing and they remained in the scheme, there was this big scary thing called the PPF that people just didn't understand. And time and time and time again, I have seen in people's uh, files misinformation around, well, if you go into the PPF, you can't retire before you're 65. Simply wrong. It's simply a lie. And if you've been working shift works for your entire Mm. life, of course you don't want somebody saying you can't access your pension until you're 65 under no circumstances. There was a fear that that they simply didn't want to get to the PPF because they thought they might lose everything. And and ironically, there's this counterfactual now that not only does the scheme not go into the PPF, but the funding position is improving. And we've just seen this week, there's a top-up payment going out to the members. They've done a buy-in already. You know, they, they appear to be on a glide path to a glide buy-out. So yes. actually, things have turned out pretty well for those that, that stayed in the scheme. So there's but, a huge amount of fear around that. So I, I think there was a lot of fear everywhere, actually. So I think the trustees and the TPR were very frightened of being seen to give advice to anybody. And we also know that the trustees were hugely overwhelmed with yes, the amount of people yeah. who were trying to get information, which should have been a red flag to everybody and should have been part of a conversation, which should have been happening between all of those parties. So uh, there was clearly a lack of communication between those responsible. And, you know, the reaction of the FCA was disappointing. They had been out after the pension freedoms came into force and they they had seen that there was some bad behaviour back in 1516 in and around uh, the advice to give DB pension transfers. And so that ought to have been a red flag to anybody at the FCA that this was going to need some careful management. Uh, and when you look, I don't know if you've seen the National Audit Office report. I have, I have read it, yes. Yes, stuff, yeah. that came out recently. Uh, and what I think are some of the really shocking numbers to come out of that is that 79% of all the, the steel workers who received advice transferred out. 79%. Yeah, that's a big red flag right there, isn't it? It's just huge. And, you know, when the, I mean, the FCA did go down and they did hold meetings and they did write CEO letters. But to me, it felt a bit like they were ticking a box. I've done that now. I've, I've sent the letter and I can't be criticised for not sending the letter. Well, we've gone down now and we've looked into some of these firms. And as we know, some of the firms that they looked into, when they again reviewed the advice that was given, so the original advice that uh, I was speaking about there in fifteen sixteen, which did not include the BSPS transfers, the results were that the uh, FCA discovered that 17% of transfer advice it reviewed was unsuitable compared with 4% in other advice sectors. And an additional 36% of cases, it was unclear. Now, to me, if your file is unclear, then it absolutely fails the test set out in the COBS rules. So when you look then at the exercise they did when they went back down to Port Talbot when this all blew up and they discovered that unsuitable advice had been clearly unsuitable advice had been given in 47% cases and a further 32% of cases, it was unclear. Those are really, really shocking numbers. So and when they went down there and they spoke to those firms and those firms that they where they discovered there was a problem had given up their DB pension transfer advice permissions. Mm-hmm. 
the FCA said, oh, right, tick that box, we're all done now, great, let's move on. But in reality, what happened was that the steelworkers who had received the advice that they had, the bad advice that they had received, thought that they ought to be transferring. Add into that that they still are up against a time limit of transferring. And if they don't transfer at that point, they then believe that they can never transfer. And they'll fall into the PPF. And they'll fall into this scary thing called the PPF. They, they took no control of the, over the actions of the sort of, in quotes, bad advisors at that point, who did nothing to rectify the misinformation that had been given to those steel workers. And they indeed weren't required to rectify any of that information. And largely what they were doing was sending the files on to another rogue who then transferred those steel workers out in any event, charged them double because by that point those steel workers were... Yeah. Exactly that. Shared the fee with the original rogue advisor and nothing was changed. It's real sausage machine stuff, isn't it? It's just kind of pushing them through. So, I mean, in fairness to the FCA, they couldn't shift the deadline. That was definitely out of their control. Mm. So the deadline was the deadline. So, you know, they were just trying to manage a very toxic situation. What came through to me reading the NAO report, and you just quoted some really good numbers there. I mean, clearly there was a lot of very questionable advice going on there. But that environment where the members didn't have anyone they could really trust, other, they thought, than the advisors who were coming along saying, well, I'll I'll tell you what to do. Mm. And those regulatory bodies really weren't managing that situation. I have some sympathy with the FCA that they were up against a deadline there. But still, to me, as you say, with hindsight, perhaps it's easy, but it felt even then that no one was really taking control of the situation. And it felt like part of that was, Dan, you referenced the scheme being reluctant about giving advice. So this was kind of falling down that gap that exists between the pensions regulator and the FCA, that no one, and as a consequence, no one really took hold of the situation. Everyone just kind of focused on their little bit of it, and that that left the members high and dry. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. And what I find frustrating is leading on from that and I, and I absolutely agree with you by then it was it was chaos everybody's everybody was in panic mode the advisors the steel workers everybody and it was it was just it was just a disaster but when you look at what has happened since then and and again I go back to the NAO report where this was back in 2017 it's now 2022 yes. the FCA has issued fines totaling 1.3 million but in actual fact they have issued one fine for 1.3 million so that's one fine scratching the surface of what's going on right and 30 more enforcement investigations are ongoing it's five years later why are these people still in the industry we report regularly to the FCA because I can't stand by and see this bad behaviour. So we've reported things like signatures being forged. We've reported things like documents being created. We've reported companies being stripped of their assets. So that was a question I was going to ask you, you know, to what extent would, and, you know, looking at the advisory businesses, you know, so it could they could have been naive, they could have been ignorant, or they could have been just kind of actually ethically a little bit wanting in this this situation. When you talk about forged signatures and and the like, that sounds like, you know, this this is perhaps evidencing some of the, some of the 
poorer aspects of human behaviour. Is, mm. is that fair? There certainly were some bad actors, in my opinion. I mean, it's difficult to justify that behaviour. There's a huge amount of, of cut and paste to the point where, you know, people's spouses' names were wrong and they were told that they had children when they had no children because they, was, they were just getting other people's letters with the, with the names changed on the top of them. So there was a significant amount of, of bad behaviour. I suppose one of the things that, that I think is really interesting about this and it's worth making clear, and people sometimes say to me, oh, have you seen any good advice, Philippa? I have to say very rarely... If I had a pound for every time I saw a suitability letter which had death benefits, early retirement and flexibility in it, I would have at least a thousand pounds. This was not high quality advice for the most part. These are not cases where the advice was on the cusp. The majority of these cases, the advice was shockingly bad. It really was awful. So, so that has to be a failure of regulation. That if, if, on the basis that there are always going to be bad actors, it is the FCA's job to make it as hard as possible for those bad actors to behave in ways that are detrimental to their customers' interests. Yeah. And from what you're saying, I mean, there was a feeding frenzy going on. The FCA was aware of it. From, from what you've just said, the regulatory controls to preempt the it's no good you know trying to trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube afterwards as we're <laughs> seeing now with the, the, the deficiencies in the compensation system you had to stop it in advance and i mean i remember talking to one of the directors of the fca probably around 2018 i can't remember exactly when and you know we talked about this kind of situation and i was being told well yes but it's difficult for us to intervene in commercial activities you know we have to we have to follow due process we have to make sure that we're not acting unfairly towards businesses so i have some sympathy with that point of view you know you don't want a reckless regulator at the same time if ever there were a situation that called out for swift and decisive intervention this surely was it yeah because the flip side to not intervening in those commercial relationships is exactly the situation which we end up in, which is where those advisors acted for their own commercial benefit to the detriment of the entire industry because they don't have the, the safety net of adequate PI insurance. And so now everybody pays because the sums of, uh, of compensation which have currently been paid out from the FSCS are you know, far from what I would expect will be paid out over the coming years. And even there, there are, I mean, there's a shortfall of tens of millions of pounds between mm. what's been paid out and, and the financial loss suffered by the scheme members. Yeah, I think there is a bit of misunderstanding around that. So the initial... You said that very um, nicely, Dawn. <laughs> the initial uh, complainants were capped at £50,000. And so we know that one of the issues, one of the particular issues with DB pension transfer advice is that it has the capacity, almost like no other type of advice, to cause catastrophic losses. And so the £50,000 doesn't touch the sides of what some of my clients have lost. And even where that cap was then raised to £85,000, it leaves 
people significantly undercompensated to the tune of, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of pounds. Can you imagine being that client, being that steel worker who ought to have been entitled to 25,000, pounds a year from age 65? They already had in place because the DB scheme closed in March 2017. So they had a very generous DC pension scheme in place where for the most part it was a 10-10 contribution Pretty good, yeah. structure. Exactly. So even if they'd wanted to retire early, they could have relied on the funds that they were building up in their DC scheme only to find that off the back of a decision that you made in many cases in the space of a very, very short period of time, off the back of a very short conversation with an advisor, that you are down hundreds of thousands of pounds and you will live a very different retirement to that which you ought to have lived. So that compensation scheme question, I mean, the industry regularly gets very eggy about the amount of money it has to pay in levies. Mm. Um, And I have quite a lot of sympathy about that, you know, significant sums of money involved. At the same time, you know, I look at it from those scheme members' perspective. I took regulated advice. I put my money into a regulated product. I've been given bad advice. In in, in what world would I not get adequate compensation to to put me back to the position I should have been in to start with? You know, how can we have a system that that still fails those members even after we've established they were badly advised? I find that perplexing. Well, it is. And this is a, a drum I've been banging for some time, which is that when you compare the minimum term insurance for the financial services industry with other professions, so solicitors, architects, accountants, the minimum term insurance is woefully inadequate for financial advisors. And that is why the FSCS last year paid out £530 million. And during the same period, the Solicitors Regulatory Authority Compensation Scheme, because we have the same thing, paid out around £12 million. This is a huge issue. So, sorry to interrupt you. How, how do we, what would good look like to you? How do you think we should change it? So, I don't believe that any profession ought to be in a position where they can have exclusions written into their PI policy for business that they have already written. So, I as a solicitor cannot have any exclusions written into my PI policy for any business that I have written in the past. So, my PI insurer can't turn around to me and say, right, we're not going to cover you for the um, conveyancing that you did five years ago. It simply isn't a qualifying piece of insurance and the SRA will not allow it to happen, which is why solicitors don't go under to the same extent that financial advisors go under. The solicitor's minimum term insurance per claim is three million pounds. If you're a sole trader solicitor, you have to have a minimum three million pounds per claim. The equivalent insurance for a sole trader financial advisor, I think is one about 1.85 in the aggregate. So if you get more than one claim, it all comes out of that same pot. And when you start to look at it in a bit more detail like that, it becomes abundantly clear just how inadequate that insurance is. Sorry to interrupt you, but but presumably this all makes absolute sense. So presumably, if we did what you have suggested, the PI insurers would look at what the financial advisors do and say, well, you know, if we're going to give you complete cover, as you've just described, I think you'll find the premiums are going to go up a little bit. You know, where that leads is you need to raise your standards to the point where the PI insurers are happy to give you that comprehensive cover. 
because they un- then feel that you've kind of controlled the risks of making extreme claims. Mm. But what we're also seeing at the moment is the number of advisors who are authorised to give DB transfers is currently dropping off a cliff. And I wonder if that's perhaps related to kind of the kind of thing you were describing, that the PI insurers are actually making life a bit more difficult there. Yes. I mean, they, unlike the FCA, the insurers were absolutely on this <laughs> as an issue and uh, were, presumably, yeah. <laughs> yeah, were presumably counting down the seconds until midnight uh, to the end of the insurance year where they had not included exclusions in the policy. And the following insurance year were then able to sigh a breath of relief at, uh, because they wow. were no longer on, on the hook, yeah. which is understandable. I do have some sympathy for the insurers because if you were an insurer of course you would do that but the the effect of that yeah the effect of that is is the reason why everybody then has to pay for the bad actors within within the financial services industry and pay a significant amount I think solicitors pay around somewhere between 20 and 40 pounds a head for their levy into the SRA compensation scheme I wouldn't want to hesitate to to say how much it might be per head within financial services, but it's going to be significantly more. Yeah, yeah. So, so for you, um, you know, what, one of the things we should take away from this whole debate is we need a fundamental reform of the compensation scheme structure and uh, sort of almost running ahead of that, the PI insurance requirements for regulated advisors in order to minimise that that. Uh, so I'm sorry, I'm just going to add one, one further thought to that. So reading the FCA's investment strategy paper that they put out towards the end of last year, they mm. talked there about the steps they're starting to take to try and make it harder for firms to get authorization in the first place. So it, it feels as if they are, you know, they're at least dimly aware of what's going on here. But I'm putting words in your mouth here. You feel like there's, there's a lot more to be done. Is that fair? I think there is a lot more to be done. I, I mean, I do have a, I have a great deal of time for the FCA. I think they are they are trying to do the right thing. I think sometimes they miss the consequences and that causes problems in and of itself. I think they are trying to steer a huge ship and that is hard. Uh, and I think they're... You know more than anybody, and the the listeners know more than anybody, that money changes behaviour and it drives behaviour and it can often drive very bad behaviour. And grappling with that is a very difficult thing. But until the FCA properly pursues a strategy of you must have integrity and that requirement for integrity spills out into your personal life as it does for other professions. So my code of conduct applies to my personal life as well, which is why the SRA cares if solicitors jump the barrier on the tube and things like that. And the first thing that the SRA would do if if my firm went into some form of financial difficulty is call the senior leadership team and say, uh, what did you do wrong to allow this to happen? And I would be hauled in front of the SDT. So I have a very sorry, personal... SDT, sorry. Is this just disciplinary tribunal? Okay. So I have a very personal obligation to my profession. And that accountability is very real for me. That's really interesting because you know I've seen seen the progression in this financial services industry over the last I mean, I've worked here for 35 years, but particularly thinking post-retail distribution review and the reforms around commission you know there i speak to a lot of financial advisors and i see a lot of good professional people doing a good job now and it feels like the industry has made progress 
I listen to you and I think, well, yeah, it sounds like we've still got some more work to do here. The BSPS debacle is is an absolute tragedy in the history of the financial services industry. Actually, I, I recently wrote an article about the information available from the from the FOS around what was going wrong in the industry. And there are, there's lots of good stuff coming out of the industry. Actually, financial advisors are not the cohort which are causing the problems. And it does appear to be around this DB transfer or this SIP transfer that, that seems to be a real issue within the industry. There are so many good financial advisors. I have an excellent financial advisor and I'm very, very glad I do. And I would encourage all of my clients to, to seek financial advice. And so I think that's the, the you know another part of the tragedy for, for British Steel is that this is another way to, to throw a grenade at the at the industry when actually most people are doing a really, really good job. And and the problem where those isolated cases are then the consequences are visited upon the entire industry is that there is only currently sort of one membership group and whether you're a good guy or a rogue you're all part of that same membership group and so I think there needs to be more work around identifying the good guys and making it harder for the bad guys to access the general public, and and that is down to the FCA, but I think there is also a, a challenge, I suppose. Do you for, think that's a trade body guys. challenge as well as a sort of self-regulatory challenge as well? Uh, I really do. I mean, the when you go back to the Gower report, which was the the report which was put together in order to create the current structure around financial services regulation, it was envisaged that the professional bodies would take responsibility for that integrity question, for the behaviour question, and. That's where the certificate of professional standing comes in. But we all know that you tick a box, you turn up to a few meetings, and no one asks you anything else. But there isn't, to be fair to them, there isn't enough information provided to them from the FCA. And the FCA will often come out and say, we can't talk about individual cases, or they'll do their classic, you know, folded fingers, we're in uh, listening mode. And there isn't enough collaboration, just, you know, going full circle to the conversation we had at the, at the start, where the trustees, the TPR, the FCA did not have good enough communication. I do not think there is good enough communication between all of the entities within the financial services regulatory structure, so the FCA, the professional bodies, the insurers, to ensure that the good guys are lifted up and, and life is much easier for them to do to, to get more clients. And it's more and more difficult for the bad guys who are unable to demonstrate that they are the good guys, make it more difficult, more expensive and all the rest of it. Now, I am seeing the FCA taking much more strident steps. And that's that's really good to see. We had a query the other day where somebody was saying, oh, you know, I've fallen out with my partners. I want to set up a new firm and leave the old firm behind, which you know, happens. Yeah. And the FCA said, well, we'll only authorise you if you give a personal guarantee in relation to the previous firm. Now, if you're in that scenario and you're one of the people who's fallen out with your partners and you want to start again, wildly frustrating. But actually, for me, when I've seen what I've seen, I think that's a great step. That's really interesting. I'm also struck by 
you know, we've got the Treasury conducting its regulatory financial future review, whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. So, so the, yeah, the Treasury is looking at, you know, what should our regulatory framework look like going forward? And we've just seen in the last week, the FCA has put out a policy statement relating to the key information documents that are published in relation to PRIPs, which were a problem. Everyone knew they were a problem and they were a problem because of badly framed EU regulation. And now here's the UK saying, well, we can change that now. Mm. And so that was kind of like a... You know, post-Brexit, we can do that. And there's this Treasury review of regulation going on more broadly. The point is there's an opportunity there to reframe things a bit. And I was really struck by what you said there, that a more collaborative relationship between the regulator and government and industry trade bodies feels like a good way forward, where you know you still have the regulator, you still have the, all the, kind of the business and all the rest of it. I think one of the gaps there, though, is, you know, there's we have some good trade bodies, you know, the ABI, the PLSA and the like. That I think they're pretty good. When it comes to the advisory profession, you've got the Personal Finance Society, you've got PIMFA, but it feels like that advisory representation for that sector to step up and alongside those other trade bodies that I've mentioned and work in collaboration with the FCA, it feels like there's a bit of a gap there still. Yes. I mean, I I, I can't help but agree with you. I I don't think there's a lack of desire. I mean, I've been speaking to the PFS and the CISI, particularly about this insurance issue, and they are very alive to this being a problem. So I think there is a desire there, but there is no legislative framework for them to do that. And as always, the FCA is slightly afraid of its own shadow. And until that framework is put in place, I think, to be fair to them, I think it is genuinely quite difficult to do. The other bit that is worth mentioning, and we haven't yet, is appointed representatives and the appointed representative regime, which is bonkers. Oh, go um, on. <laughs> <laughs> there it really is. I mean, in order to access the general public, of course, you have to be within the FCA perimeter. So you have to be authorised. Otherwise, as we all know, it's a criminal offence, unless you're an AR. But the, the situation which has been created through various pieces of, of case law and the legislation is that the principal is only responsible for the AR to the extent of the private contract between the principal and the AR. And sorry, just to interrupt briefly, to, to me, that's the FCA taking a pragmatic approach of, look, we've got tens of thousands of firms are regulating, let's subcontract some of that responsibility to firm principals and, and, and you know, we'll hold them to account for what their appointed representatives do. That's fair, isn't it? Well, it would be fair if that were true. But they only hold them to account insofar as the written agreement between them. So, yes, I would agree with you, probably, if we said, no, you are, as an agent to principal, you are responsible for everything that your AR does. But they're not responsible for everything that their AR does. They are only responsible to the extent of the contract between them. So you are Mrs. Miggins, who comes along to an AR. You see at the bottom, it says, oh, you know, we are, you know, an AR of... X network and they are covered by the FCA. Absolutely fine. Everybody has access to the general public in an entirely legal manner. But they don't have within the, the private contract between the AR and the principal the right to do DB transfers. How does a client know that? They're never going to see the contract between 
the AR and the principal. And yet they go to them understanding that, oh, it's a financial advisor. Financial advisor does financial advice. And so we've seen on a number of occasions circumstances where the AR has, oh, there was one, the MyDAS case relatively recently, where the AR was running a, a Ponzi scheme right under the nose of the network. The network weren't aware of it, but they weren't responsible for the AR because the AR wasn't allowed under the terms of the contract to enter into collective investment scheme investments. So where does the answer lie there? Is it is it about tightening up that relationship between the principal and the appointed representative? Would that fix it? Well, you don't have a scenario where, you know, that AR relationship is not present in other professions. You don't see it in, you know, doctors have to be <laughs> registered. Solicitors have to be members of, you know, we have to have our certificate and our yearly review with the SRA. But so I don't really really understand there to be a genuine argument to say, well, we should make it easier within financial services when we don't make it easy for doctors, we don't make it easy for accountants, nor do we make it easy for solicitors, and nor should we. So one question is, well, should we have an AR regime at all, or should we simply have everybody to being directly authorised? I would have no issue with that at all. Or alternatively, if you are in the same way that an employer is responsible for their employee, I would have them responsible for the the actions of the AR, provided they are conducting regulated activities. The principal would be 100% liable for anything the AR does under their umbrella. I mean, in the same way that as an employer, you're not responsible for your employee if they go off on a frolic of their own, I would apply the same sorts of principles where, but if they are, this is about protecting the the, yeah, the poor Mrs. Mrs. Miggins. Yeah. Mrs. Miggins, exactly. And if they are representing to Mrs. Miggins that they are fully authorised to do the work that they are doing for her, and it, it's not it's not stealing or something that falls right outside of the regulated activities order, then yes, I would hold I would hold the network responsible for that. And it's all about accountability, isn't it? It's always about accountability. Yes. So accountability from the from the insurer. If the insurer's got skin in the game, they're going to want to know what you're doing and why you're doing it. They certainly do for me and my industry. And if the principal is fully responsible for their agent, you know, you get they're going to take more care. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I, I can't disagree with anything you've just said. I think that's absolutely fascinating. And it would be interesting to see some of those thoughts taken forward. I'm not aware that the FCA is thinking in those kind of terms at the moment. There was a paper that was delivered to the Treasury around ARs. I think, I believe the, the FCA is aware and concerned about the appointed representative regime. That, In fact, there was a Westminster Hall debate about it last week week okay. where that point was raised. Okay, thank you. I shall have to go back and have a look at that. Missed that one. <laughs> okay, so look, there's one other one other question I wanted to ask you about coming back to, so we, we, we drifted a bit. That was really fascinating and I'm really glad we explored all that territory. Just coming back to the British school situation for a moment. I saw a lot of insurance companies hoovering up very substantial sums of money. Thank you very much. We've got these human shields of the financial advisors. They're the ones giving the advice. If they send us the money, nothing to do with us, Gov. Mm. Do you think they bear any responsibility for, you know, is, is, is that legitimate? Should any questions be asked of the 
the product providers to whom those pension transfers were sent? I think it's a really interesting question. Do I think that there is a legal case to be made on the basis of the current legislation and regulation? No, I don't. Do I think that there ought to be more communication? We go back to this point around communication for the for the common good. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so if platforms, SIPs, insurance companies are identifying large numbers of activity, which is surprising. That maybe doesn't satisfy the smell test entirely. Exactly. Then yes, I think we are, if we are all seeking to take the financial services industry towards a common goal of actually you shouldn't be in a situation where somebody takes advantage of you, then we need to put in place these these red flags, these canaries to say, oh, do you know what, everybody needs to take a bit of responsibility. And if you see something bad, then you need to be flagging it. You need to be identifying it and you need to be asking questions. It just makes sense. Couldn't agree more. And again, to be fair to the FCA, you know, I'd point to the forthcoming consumer duty regulatory initiative, which I think potentially will answer some of those questions that will Mm. create an environment where that kind of culture will hopefully take root. So I've got a question for you off the back of that, actually, Tom. Do you think that there is... That's not how this works for me. (laughs) (laughs) That there is currently a culture where those in the finance industry feel comfortable and will in fact say, do you know what, I see something that I don't like and I'm going to point the finger. Do you think that that is something which is needs to be developed or is something which is happening already? Certainly I can point to instances I've, I've seen, I've spoken to many individuals working for a spectrum of financial institutions over the years. I can think of instances of honest individuals who have called out poor practice so sometimes relating to their own firm. Oh, wow, it's good to hear. So so it does happen. I think perhaps we could do with a bit more of that. Um, mm. And I was speaking to a representative of the FCA yesterday who was kind of highlighting, look, we really like to hear from you, industry. You know, we have mechanisms in place. You know, if, if you see something that you think looks wrong, you know, do please talk to us. So I know their door is open in that regard. I think culturally as an industry we've probably got a bit of a way to go for that to just become an accepted part of how the industry operates so Mm. so i I guess that's a bit of a fudge answer to your question but then it's a bit of a fudge situation yes yeah good and on that note let's draw this one to a close i've just been really fascinated by so much of what you said i think you posed a lot of really interesting questions for where we go next with all of this which is great so so thank you very much philippa it's been lovely to talk to you this morning and you you're so welcome I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.